a course on world history is, is to help us to examine where we are, what our moment is, and what kind of scenario. And what we've discovered so far is that this moment that we're in has quite strikingly divergent interpretations. I mean, one is that the moment was created when the Europeans escaped uh, from their limitations, uh, territorial limitations, and formed uh, colonial empires around the world uh, by sailing the oceans. And but according to this, which corresponds, roughly speaking, to Rodney's uh, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa and to Wallerstein's The Modern World System. The world system has its origins in the 16th century, following Columbus's transatlantic voyage. Certainly, when seen from the perspective of the Caribbean, which became an early and, and, and to some extent, uh, South America uh, uh, also, See, from that perspective, the accumulation of wealth by Europeans in the period from 1500 to 1800 was one of the conditions for the development of industrial capitalism. It was the source of an exceptional fund, a capital fund. But one of the arguments that I've been presenting, and which was reinforced by Arthur Lewis last week, evolution of the international order is that the Europeans' uh, purchase on the rest of the world was really quite precarious until the 19th century and uh, in most of the places that they settled uh, they, were, they had very limited power to impose their will on local peoples, especially in Africa you know, where uh, they were um, in many cases uh, a small minority. And the general argument that I've been presenting is that we need to look at the 200-year period from around 1800 as a moment in which humanity, fueled to some extent by industrial capitalism, changed the relationship between our population and the planet, became uh, urban to a degree that was unprecedented, uh, disposed of inanimate sources of energy, converted by machines, which transformed our relationship to the world and to each other, and created new and often quite exaggerated forms of inequality. And according to Lewis, uh, even that 19th century period was not itself the period of formation of the world society as we experience it, or experienced it in the 20th century. And this was in fact the, the outcome of several decades of what we might call financial globalization from the 1880s up to the First World War. This was the period, of course, when South Africa took its modern form. And he tried to argue that that the distinctively racial division of the world into rich and poor countries, the manufacturing exporters and agricultural exporters, and the racialization of that inequality or difference was a specific outcome of the attempt to manage different migration streams from Asia and from Europe 
which were rewarded very differently in that period. And of course, this period, which is often known as the age of imperialism, was the period in which the majority of Africa became distinctively subject to colonial empire. So, seen in that perspective, the transformation we're concerned with is much more recent than in some versions, which would trace it to several centuries ago. I've also mentioned that if 18th century anthropology, the anthropology of the liberal enlightenment, was concerned with the social conditions of a democratic revolution against the arbitrary inequality of the old regime, they sought to discover what human beings have in common as the basis for a new constitutional equality that was based on, on, on what we all share, that in the 19th century, anthropology simply became an explanation for the ability of the Europeans to take over the world, which they achieved very successfully by 1900, when nine-tenths of the inhabited surface of the planet was controlled by them. So, in this uh, perspective, the 19th century, driven by the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution, the 19th century was the period in which modern world society began to be formed. It was formed on the basis of extreme inequality, understood in racial terms, and pointed out the explanation for Europeans' ability to do this was initially cultural, that we were smarter than them, we had science and they had superstition or whatever, but that very quickly this cultural superiority was understood as having a biological basis symbolized by uh, skin color. And this idea that we were rational and uh, racially superior uh, began to unravel in the late 19th century. It was attacked on numerous fronts, most significantly by Freud, who argued that, that what we're claiming reason is, uh, is actually not. It was attacked by uh, working class movements, by women, all of whom were normatively excluded from this notion of a, a rational uh, white male uh, civilization. But the decisive move was the experience of the First World War, in which, because up till then, uh, nobody had seriously imagined that government could control this restless urban commercial economy that was taking over the world. But in the course of the First World War, governments raised and killed off huge armies. They uh, controlled production. They control propaganda, uh, information, and marketing, and, and much else. So the, the First World War simultaneously demonstrated the bankruptcy of Western civilization by killing so many people uselessly, and at the same time showed that governments could do far more than the 19th century imperialists imagined. And so after the First World War, there was a competition between different forms of state to control the world. Uh, uh, welfare state democracy, fascism, communism, whatever. But for most of the 20th century, 
there was the notion that that mankind could be remade in new ways. That uh, the, the you know the new Soviet man or the new Nazi or whoever. And indeed, until uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall at the end of the 1980s, there were several competing models of of humanity, of human, what a human being is, and how it can or not, uh, be made. And my basic uh, thesis is that what we're talking about is the making of a world society for the first time, that the 21st century will be the decisive moment in this process, that if the 21st century is run on the principles of the 20th, there will be no 22nd century. So it is extremely important for us to discover new ways of organizing the society in which we become increasingly interdependent. And this society was formed initially by this unilateral, unequal, racialized, and coercive Western imperialism. So Western imperialism brought humanity into a world society controlled by itself and and mastered in its own image. And seen from this point of view, the main development of the 21st, of the 20th century, was that this was the time when people who had been forced into a system of global domination organized from Europe, uh, sought to establish their own independent relationship to the world, and with it, uh, create new visions of human possibility. So what happened to anthropology in all this? I mean, essentially, in the 20th century, anthropology became ethnography. It took its inspiration from Central European ethnographers who sought to uh, found notions of the new Polish citizen on uh, investigation of rural peasantries in their own country. And Malinowski, who grew up in that tradition, uh, established a particular exotic version of it in London, which became a model for how anthropology was done globally. And of course, in the process, just as the empires began to unravel and visions of global unity uh, became more opaque in the competition for global domination, Nationalism essentially is, a, is an ideology which says that the only thing that matters is what happens within our borders and everything out there is secondary or irrelevant or a threat or whatever. And I believe that to some extent the ethnographic move reflected the shift in world society towards nationalisms which conceived of themselves in locally bounded, culturally homogeneous terms uh, without any vision of, of what might be going on in the world. And, and you know, I was trained in such an anthropology, which meant that I had absolutely no clue uh, what was going on in the, in, in, in the middle of my own formation as an academic anthropologist. What was going on in mid-century and immediately afterwards was the anti-colonial revolution, the revolution of people drawn into world society 
by Western imperialism and their ability to throw it off. In, uh, which took several decades, of course. But, uh, you know, I mean, for example, I told you last week, Monday, that it was only feminist historians who alerted me in the 1970s to the Abur women's riots over oil palm marketing in eastern Nigeria. I had heard of C.L.R. James, but I had no idea that in 1977 he wrote a book called Nkrumah and the Ghana Revolution, which, I mean, I was a Ghana specialist, remember? I mean, you know, and I, I, that's where I did my doctoral research, and I didn't know that one of the greatest intellectuals of the 20th, 20th century had written a devastating critique of uh, Nkrumah's management of post-colonial society in Ghana. So, as a teacher, uh, towards the 80s and 90s, I began to realize that we have to have new ways of trying to understand a process which is global, was global, and which our ethnographic methods make it, make it impossible to grasp. And, and so I asked the question, if we were interested in the anti-colonialized, anti-colonial revolution, how could we study it? Clearly, we're not going to find anti-colonial anthropologists doing local ethnography. We're not going to find, you know, anti-colonial intellectuals doing research in archives. So we have to study the great intellectuals and, and, and political figures and the writings that they left us. That's our source. So, uh, as I've been saying several times already, uh, I believe, and it is my, my, my greatest aspiration in a way, that we in the 21st century have to build on the anti-colonial intellectuals of the, of the 20th century, of whom the greatest are Mohandas Gandhi, C.L.R. James, Franz Fanon. And today I'm going to talk about Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth which he wrote in 1961. He was uh, a psychiatrist from uh, Martinique in the French uh, West Indies. He worked for a long time during the Algerian War of Independence in Algeria. And he died uh, very early in his uh, early to mid-30s of leukemia which is, of course, great preparation to become a, a cult figure. But it is, uh, he was extraordinary. I need to, to, to fill in a bit about why I became an anthropologist. I mean, in the 1960s, there was a youth rebellion in the United States and Europe. And it was linked to struggles over colonial independence, women, racial and civil rights struggles, and so on and so forth. But the fundamental notion we all had was that the only hope for the world came from the anti-colonial revolution. It was only, this was the main source of hope. This is why I went to West Africa. Ghana was the first African country to gain formal independence. It had a long history of this. And, you know, when we demonstrated against American imperialism and so on, 
We chanted the names of third world political leaders, Ho Chi Minh, Fidel Castro, Kwame Nkrumah. I mean, this is because we really believed that what you will find when you read Fanon, that these people were essentially destroying the false, colonized, racialized world order, the vision of mankind that sustained the, the European societies, and they were building alternatives from which we would all have to learn. It wasn't a question of, uh, well, you know, isn't it nice that they're having their own little political revolution? You know, maybe we can study it. I mean, these people were going to change the world for all of us. I mean, the fact is that the Vietnamese did change the world for all of us by defeating the Americans at this time. And, uh, I mean, my PhD topic was uh, I wanted to study migrants from the interior to the coastal cities and to see how they were being incorporated into a new political order through parties, through voluntary associations, migrant associations, and so on. But of course, when I got there, I discovered that Ghana was a police state and that nobody wanted to talk about politics for the very good reason that they would get locked up or worse if they did. So that was, you know, that's the end of my PhD project within about five minutes. So I'm sitting in this slum, thinking, shit, what am I going to do? I mean, uh, and then I noticed that there's this vibrant street economy, people boosting everything from marijuana to refrigerators. You know, just a lot of, you know, just a lot of stuff going on there. I said, well, you know, they might have a defunct political system, but their street economy is lively enough. I'll study that. <laughs> so that's what I did. But then, at the end of the 70s, I wrote a book which I referred to, The Political Economy of West African Ag Agriculture. And it was a very angry book. I mean, I was mostly angry with myself. How could I have imagined that independence in West Africa was going to do anything for the world? I mean, by the end of the 70s, everything, all hope had been obliterated. I mean, you know, West Africa was entering into a period of 40 years or so in which everything went backwards. I mean, Ghana in 1960 had a larger economy than Indonesia. Its per capita income was equal to that of South Korea. I mean, 40 years later, South Korea had a per capita income 40 times that of Ghana. And Ghana's had actually been reduced in that period. So, uh, I was feeling, you know, pretty angry about all this. So I wrote a book and I said, it's their fault, <laughs> you know? I mean, they must have had something to do with this. I mean, they had the wrong idea. What was it, what was it, etc. But nevertheless, I mean, writers like James and Fanon still can ignite this hope, which I think is still a hope for humanity that that a resurgent Africa linked to other uh, similar developments in the rest of the world can change the conceptions we have of humanity and world society and the models on which we base our lives. I mean, this is an idea which is 
kind of romantic, but it's been here for, you know, 250 years at least. So, Fanon, Fanon's book is, uh, first of all, it was written in French, translated into English. There are two translations into English, which are actually quite different. And the later one, it has an introduction by Homi Baba, who perhaps out of deference to Fanon, chose to write intelligibly for a change. And the earlier one is, is, is different, but they both have a preface by Jean-Paul Sartre. And you may, <laughs> I mean, we live in different worlds, but <laughs> after the war in the late 40s, Jean-Paul Sartre and his psychic Simone de Beauvoir were the most famous people in the world. You know, I mean, they were the, you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie of, uh, of their day. I mean, you know, wherever they went, they were superstars. And, you know, in the late 40s, people thought intellectuals had the answers. And Jean-Paul Sartre was, you know, king of them all. Uh, so he writes uh, in 1961, the preface to this thing. He's writing it, obviously, for French people. And the first message of the book is, we've got to kill Whitey. I mean, this is it. I mean, we're not getting anywhere unless we kill Whitey. So the first thing that, that Jean-Paul Sartre has to explain to his French audience is why they should read a book inciting people to kill them. <laughs> But, I mean, ever since this, uh, I mean, this book has had the reputation of being a kind of dangerous, kind of mad uh, incitement to violence. And that's certainly one aspect of it. But what I want to uh, show you today is it's uh, much more subtle than that. There are five chapters. The first is called On Violence. Um, describe it. The second is called Grandeur and Weakness of Spontaneity. The first one is uh, about uh, how uh, colonial domination was itself a violent system and that there's no way of getting rid of it peacefully. That, that a true decolonization has to fight a war against this system. And anybody who thinks you can just sign a piece of paper and get it, you know, without having to fight, uh, will have to fight later. That's the kind of argument of that. The second chapter is really, really interesting. It's, it's quite short. But what he's asking there is, what was the class system of colonial society? Especially seen from the point of view of the African or the colonized. And he presents, I'll tell you, you know, my summary of this. The third one is the longest. And in the first translation, it was called the pitfalls of national consciousness, which makes it sound like, you know, national consciousness might be a mistake. And that's certainly how I read it, because I'm anti-nationalist. But the next one, the second edition, he calls it The Trials and Tribulations of National Consciousness, which is more uh, uh, ambivalent. And here he focuses on 
the failures of the national post-colonial bourgeoisie. That's his, his main focus is on, on how the, the class that inherits rule from colonial empire is always a, a failure. The fourth chapter is called On National Culture, and this is a speech that he uh, made in Rome. And it's a very interesting argument about race and nation and culture and the, the link of all these three to the struggle for independence. And the final chapter is called Colonial War and Mental Disorders. This refers to his professional engagement in Algeria. And it's a series of case studies. Um, from both sides of uh, the war. I mean, this was a terrible war. It's, 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 it was a genocide. I mean, a million North Africans died in a decade. And the consequences were horrific. And, I mean, he has case studies here of 13-year-old Algerian boys who can't cope with the fact that they killed their European playmates. He has uh, squaddies, French squaddies, who, who can't live with torturing the militants, the fact that they did this and this. I mean, what he's showing here, whatever he said about the necessity of violence, is that violence is humanly impossible. We can't live with it. He's saying, and this applies to the victimizers just as much as to the victims. So having said all through the book that we, we have to kind of you know, seize the chance and go through a war and all this stuff, at the end of it, as a psychiatrist, he's saying it's humanly impossible to support all this stuff. And he has all these cases. And I believe, you know, I have a folk theory of cancer and all of that. I just believe that, that being situated in the middle of that war as a French employee, sympathetic to the insurrection, treating people on both sides, all ages, genders, and so on, he absorbed an enormous amount of stress. And I, you know, I happen to think that whatever other reasons for people dying of cancer, that is one of them. And it's one of the reasons why he didn't last very long. I mean, it, it was inhuman for him to listen to all these people and seek to treat them, I think. So it's a very different message by the time you reach the end. Uh, in the conclusions, I mean, he basically says, above all, don't mimic Europe. The game is up for Europe. I mean, they're finished, they're on the way out. Don't, uh, don't aid them. I mean, it's up to us to create a new global humanity based on the repudiation of the colonial order of Western imperialism. What I'm going to do now is read you, just, I mean, he wrote in French, the French is more impressive than the English, even. I'm going to read some sections, just so you get a sense of this guy, of his voice. You know, not my voice, his voice. So, uh, but when decolonization occurs in regions where the liberation struggle 
has not yet made its impact sufficiently felt. Here at the same smart Alex, the sly, shrewd intellectuals, whose behavior and ways of thinking picked up from their rubbing shoulders with the colonial bourgeoisie have remained intact. Spoiled children of yesterday's colonialism and today's governing powers, they oversee the looting of the few national resources. Ruthless in their scheming and legal pilfering, they use the poverty now nationwide to work their way to the top through import-export holdings, limited companies, playing the stock market and nepotism. They insist on the nationalization of business transactions, i.e. reserving contracts and business deals for nationals. Their doctrine is to proclaim the absolute need for nationalizing the theft of the nation. In this barren national phase, in this so-called period of austerity, their success of plundering the nation swiftly sparks anger and violence from the people. In the present international and African context, the poverty-stricken and independent population achieves a social consciousness at a rapidly accelerating pace. This, the petty individualists will soon find out for themselves. Okay. Uh, let me try another. Oh, this is a good one. It's the uh, it's colonialism symbolized as a statue of a dead general. Uh, the colonist makes history, and he knows it. And because he refers constantly to the history of his metropolis, he plainly indicates that here he is the extension of this metropolis. The history he writes is therefore not the history of the country he is despoiling, but the history of his own nations looting, raping, and starving to death. The immobility to which the colonized subject is condemned can be challenged only if he decides to put an end to the history of colonization and the history of despoliation in order to bring to life the history of the nation, the history of decolonization. A world compartmentalized, Manichaean, and petrified. A world of statues. The statue of the general who led the conquest. The statue of the engineer who built the bridge. A world cocksure of itself, crushing with its stoniness the backbones of those scarred by the whip. This is the colonial world. The colonial subject is a man penned in. Apartheid is but one method of compartmentalizing the colonial world. The first thing the colonial subject learns is to remain in his place and not overstep its limits. Hence, the dreams of the colonial subject are muscular dreams, dreams of action, dreams of aggressive vitality. I dream I'm jumping, swimming, running and climbing. I dream I burst out laughing. I'm leaping across a river and chased by a pack of cars that never catches up with me. During colonization, the condemned subject frees himself night after night between nine in the evening and six in the morning. So that's uh, 
uh, something of a writer, you could say. <laughs> There's a lot more like that. I mean, it, it is inspirational. You don't have to... Well, it, it is an inspiration. So, uh, let me go back to the argument, then, in these five chapters. The first chapter is saying that the system of colonial domination is brutal and total, and therefore there is no negotiating with it. When the colonialists see that they have to retreat, they will seek negotiation. But unless the colonial subjects overthrow the colonial order violently, they won't succeed. The second chapter is a very interesting one, as I said. I mean, I think as a method, it's something that we ought to ape. I mean, instead of the sort of ethnographic consciousness, as it were, you ask, I mean, who are the classes in this situation, late colonialism? The people who might or might not uh, overthrow the colonial order. What is their relationship? What happens to those relations after the achievement of independence? And so on and so forth. Now, here he, he argues that the biggest uh, division is between the peasants and the town. The, the towns are very small, but the inhabitants of the town, whether African or colonist, have a, a strong interest in being separated from the mass of the peasantry, whom they represent as being kind of backward, stagnant, uh, conservative, and the rest of it. He says that the urban classes are very small. There is hardly any manufacturing or industry. So there isn't a working class of the traditional sort. The scope for trading, indigenous trading, is very limited. There are teachers and civil servants who went to the metropolitan country for their qualifications. They too are a very small minority and they tend to be, their mindset tends to be that of the metropolitan country. And uh, these people especially from whom the anti-colonial movement draws its leadership uh, are particularly at odds with the peasantry. Uh, and the peasantry in turn are shielded from the city by traditional authorities, the chiefs. That the colonial order creates a system of traditional chiefs who represent a kind of buffer between the colonial state and the peasants. And these chiefs are, of course, uh, compromised, and in a sense, they ensure that the voice of the peasants is not heard. But his general argument is that the only revolutionary class in this situation is the peasantry. He's saying the peasants have nothing to lose and everything to gain. All the others have something at stake in the colonial order and they're ambivalent about risking it. Certainly the chiefs, certainly the uh, small you know, urban uh, African middle class. And so he then suggests a model. I mean, his method in this book is ideal typical, which is to say he's setting up a general model 
an ideal type of the anti-colonial revolution, and he uses examples from South Africa or Senegal or uh, Algeria, but of course, I mean, the, the sequence is never exactly the same in every place, but he, he tries to convince you that this is a general uh, process. And he said, the point, a point arises when the colonial uh, order cracks down on the dissident political class of the towns. In other words, there grows up a resistance movement, uh, an independence movement, parties, whatever, and their political leadership live in the towns, but at some point, the Secret Service and the army and the colonial authorities decide that these people are a threat to uh, social order and they try to round them up. So they then escape from the town and for the first time in their lives actually encounter the peasantry amongst whom they are forced to take refuge. And then they discover what the dynamism of the peasantry really is, that these people actually are the source for Pan-Africanism. They have only one idea, getting their land back. And they know that they're going to have to fight a war to get it back. But all of this is somehow kind of obscured or obfuscated in nationalist politics in the urban center. But because these people are forced out by the colonial regime, they then make alliances with the peasantry. The peasants teach them how to develop guerrilla war, and of course these uh, uh, intellectual, political intellectuals uh, have an education and vision of the world that, that they can use to enrich the peasants' understanding of what they're up against. So this is the beginning of the national struggle properly, when some fraction of the urban polit politicians and intellectuals make an alliance with the peasantry. It's a very idealized picture, obviously. But I mean, the point of it is not to say, well, did this really happen here or there? It's to say, well, if we were doing the same today in South Africa, for example, or Southern Africa, I mean, who would be the classes? And what is their historical relationship? And what situations might provoke new forms of class alliance that are more radical? All of those questions. So this, for me, is, is the uh, really key chapter. The next one, which is by far the longest. By the way, I have a method when reading books. I mean, you know, they write at the beginning and the end what it's all about. But I like to know, what did they end up writing about? I mean, when they actually wrote the book, what did they really take time to talk about at length? So one of the things that I do is uh, count the pages of different chapters and uh, different themes and, and of course, you know, it becomes very clear that, that this is the hinge chapter of the whole book. I mean, the first chapter is why the colonized world can only be overthrown by violence. The second one is, you know, what was the historical sociology of this process in the case of European empires in Africa. The third one is saying, well, what happens next? I think it's possible to read this in different ways. I think when I read it for this lecture, 
I read it differently from the way I recall reading it in the past. This may have something to do with the translation, or it more likely has something to do with me. But he's not arguing against nationalism. I mean, that's what I thought in my Jamesian phase. I thought that, I mean, in the anti-colonial revolution was fed by pan-Africanist ideology. Europeans controlled all the land, all Africans could come together in pushing them off. But as soon as they pushed them off, they were uh, trapped into little nation-states, which were then, you know, lined up on opposite sides of the Cold War and fed into the United Nations machine and, you know, uh, uh, organized by the World Bank and IMF and the rest of it. So, you know, my original story was that these nation-states are, in some sense, a falling off from the unit, a necessary one probably, but a falling off from the, the African unity that fueled the anti-colonial struggle in the first place. But, I mean, it's worth taking a step backwards. I mean, I mean we tend to think of nationalism today as being xenophobic. You know, that, that nationalism is, you know, they're all out to get us and we have to close ranks in order to defeat these people who are invading us and undermining our solidarity and taking our jobs and our women and all the rest of it. But in fact, uh, nationalism in uh, the Italian model, for example, from the mid-19th century, was conceived of not as a way of kind of holding the world at arm's length or escaping from the world, but actually as a way of joining it. I mean, Italian, and that's why the Italian Revolution was funded by the industrialists of Milan and Turin because they felt that the Austro-Hungarian Empire was blocking their chances to access world markets and that a free Italian Republic would be able to enter the world uh, on a more equal basis and, and the whole point was to join it. And there is a, a, a very good example in West Africa in the history of the Yoruba nation. I mean, I get this from reading various people, but especially the work of uh, John Peel. I mean, the Yoruba, as you know, are a huge nation. I mean, within Nigeria, uh, they occupy most of the western Nigeria. In the 19th century, they were engaged in wars between city-states of various kinds, and they're divided equally between Christianity and Islam. But in the second half of the 19th century, they formed something that becomes recognizably a Yoruba nation. And this Yoruba nationalism is, is of particular interest because it's very clearly in the Italian, rather than let's say the German model of nationalism. Because what these people were forming themselves as a nation to take advantage of was Western education, global commerce, and Christianity. The national leaders of the Yoruba were bishops and prominent teachers and, and so on. So the point being that the, the Yoruba wanted to join the world, not to escape from it. 
and they felt that they had to come together from being warring city-states and so on in order to do so. But it was through some of the, what they were conceived of, at least by this uh, elite, as uh, the benefits of, of, of Western civilization. So, uh, what, uh, what Fanon is trying to get at in this chapter, this long and crucial hinge chapter of the book, is, it now seems to me, he's not against nationalism. He's, uh, he, but he believes that that the only value, you know, valuable form of nationalism is one that leads to international engagement and alliance, not seclusion, if you like. But he's also talking there about how the benefits of the anti-colonial struggle that linked Africans on both sides of the Atlantic, you know, might uh, uh, were replaced by the more parochial concerns of the successor uh, nation-states. And uh, he has... Uh, <laughs> the way he writes about the national bourgeoisie, you would love it. I mean, the Mail and Guardian would be ashamed. I mean, the, the <laughs> I'd have just give you one, uh, uh, one example. Okay, here we go. The national bourgeoisie in the underdeveloped countries is not geared to production, invention, creation, or work. All its energy is channeled into intermediary activities. Networking and scheming seem to be its underlying vocation. The national bourgeoisie has the psychology of a businessman, not that of a captain of industry. But most of all, they don't have the money to make it work for them. <laughs> um, the fourth chapter on national culture, which uh, was a 1959 paper given at a conference in Rome, is very pleasing to me because he's saying that focusing on culture is the wrong way around. He says, you know, that it's stupid to insist on wearing Moroccan sandals, not Gucci loafers and all this stuff, all these symbols of, of cultural difference. He said, you know, the thing that motors uh, a vibrant national culture is the social struggle to establish independence. And he also discusses in this chapter, in a very, very subtle way, the relationship between uh, race and nation in cultural development. In particular, I think you would find it quite instructive. I mean, he argues against the idea of a black culture. I mean, this is somebody who is black and who has been a Pan-Africanist for most of his adult life, and yet he's claiming that Pan-Africanism can't be based on blackness. And of course, he's coming out of North Africa. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, black kids are being discriminated against in Algerian schools. You know, so, but anyway, I, I, think, I think that chapter uh, is, very, you know, is very interesting. And then finally, there is this harrowing series of case notes, which, as I've already said, I mean, leaves you thinking, well, how could anybody survive that stuff? 
And, and what this leads us to is the terrible conclusions of the book, which is that war is inevitable and war destroys our humanity. That's the point. I mean, everybody focusing on, here's this guy saying, shoot YT. But at the end, I mean, the guy is saying that something like the colonial order cannot pass peacefully. But the conditions of its passing are terrible to endure. And, uh, and it leads us to, you know, have to, the, you know, we in these classrooms tend to think of, we talk about social change, we may even talk about revolution, we may, you know, we aspire to a better world, we hope that we contribute to it in some way. But uh, if you look at the last 200 years, the catalyst of uh, significant social change, movement in the social order, has always been, or in most cases, a war. I mean, they're not just local wars, I mean, world wars. Clearly, looking back to Fanon and James and the others, we look at the 1960s and we recognize this sense of the world turning itself upside down uh, through the drive of the colonized people for their own independence. It's not our world anymore. Maybe it is in some ways, who knows? But I mean, you know, the reason for reading Fanon is not to say, is this right? It's what can we learn from him in trying to understand our predicament? Or will that predicament take us over before we've even managed to think about it properly? And that, you know, that's what this book is about. Thank you.